0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a wet and humid morning here in the capital is Timothy Ringo. Tim is an award-winning author, keynote speaker and board advisor for various businesses on topics relating to HR and human capital. Uh, Tim, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so much for joining us on the show.
1: So many thanks. It's uh, it's a pleasure.
0: It's a pleasure having you with us as well, Tim. And just for the listeners tuning into the podcast today, we do like bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And so we'll be discussing something a little bit different on today's podcast. And that will be covering the hire and fire binge, as Tim here likes to call it. Um, Tim, of course, we've seen sort of three major crises, haven't we, in the first sort of 20 years of this century. Um, You refer to in the article that you wrote for CEO Today magazine as those three crises being the 9-11 attacks in the United States, the Great Recession of 2008, and now, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic that we're still living through now. Now, in 2001 and 2008, both events were preceded by large-scale hiring activity due to favourable economic conditions. And then almost immediately, you saw businesses and organisations starting to cut jobs, engaging in what was essentially called the hire and fire binge Now, business leaders are now again being sucked into this mentality, aren't they, through COVID, that when the going gets tough, they have to let people go. And that's something that you call furlough fatalism. What is it, in your view, that actually sucks business leaders into that sort of firing mentality?
1: Um, Well, you know, over a sort of 30-year career, you know, I've I've been able to see, you know, all three of these, um, these crises. And I think we've been a little bit unlucky. To have such a large global crisis, you know, all in the space of uh, of twenty years, but over and over again, what what I saw, and as I wrote in the article, was that there was an immediate sort of move to, well, people are costs, um, we need to cut them, you know, to sort of survive the, the crisis, and then almost immediately afterwards, you know, once the crisis starts to ebb, then these same leaders are uh, discover that they ended up, you know, getting rid of, of people that they needed skills that they needed. Mm. Um, and, you know, because of that, you end up with a situation where it takes longer for businesses to cover. It's kind of, you know, cutting your nose off despite of your face. And, and, you know, 2001 it happened and, and many of the leaders that I, I, I met then were like, we'll never do that again. And then you get to 2008 and they, and they do it again. I think it's just, um, it's it just become habit, um, of seeing people as cost, not people as, you know, um, mm. uh, you know, producing revenue, producing, uh, customer engagement, you know, the things that they, they do really well. Um, and and it's just kind of a reflux, really. And it's something that I've seen destroy, you know, uh, shareholder value I've seen it destroy um, internal morale in, in organizations. And uh, it's not been good. But this, this situation has been a bit different. I was really concerned at the beginning uh, of the pandemic, say, you know about I don't know, fourteen months ago mm. that we were going to see the same thing again. Uh, you know organizations were just going to step in and start cutting. What we saw was something different, which is governments stepped in almost immediately uh, and said, hang on, you know, don't don't furlough people. Um, you know we'll pay a certain amount of it. And this happened in North America happened across europe and And you actually saw, I think, potentially a breaking of this cycle um, where Organization seems to say, okay, well, let's give this a shot. Let's see this sounds like a good, good plan. And you didn't see the kind of wholesale and rapid, um, you know, uh, um, furloughing of, of people. So, um, it, it's it created a different dynamic. And we've kind of now set up the situation. We've been in this for, you know, 16 months now. Um, and organizations and government are kind of working together to kind of avoid that higher high bargain. So I'm kind of hoping that this is shown that there's an example of keeping people in place is, is actually good for business, um, and you know, anecdotally, what I'm seeing so far is a lot of leaders saying, "You know, this was good. We didn't lose good people; we were able to keep them in place."
2: Mm.
0: So I'm
1: hoping that this is you know, third time's the charm.
0: Hopefully so. And I think what has been amplified by the pandemic as well uh, is mental health and well-being and the importance of that, isn't it? And I think that maybe has also gone some way towards people being kept on during the pandemic. Is that something that maybe you've seen as well?
1: I think so. Uh, I, I think the main driver has been, you know, just simply, you know, we want to keep our people and we want to be ready for when the upturn comes. Mm. But I think certainly th- this time is different because twenty years ago, you know, um, worker well-being was called health and safety, and it was a, it was just simply fulfilling a, a regulatory um, situation. Even in two thousand eight, it was very similar. But before the pandemic, you've seen, you know, particularly in the UK, you've seen a doubling in the investment in the employee well-being space before the pandemic. And I think that the pandemic has accelerated that. So certainly I think organizations are now recognizing that when you look after people, you get a return. Mm. Uh, And I think that's certainly been a part of this. I think the question is going to be is, how is this going to be sustainable? Are we going to see, say, there's another crisis, you know, God forbid, in in 10 years? Um, You know, will the government step in? Will the government not step in? If the government doesn't step in, will organisations go back to the furlough of fatalism and say, "Well, I can't control it, so I have to let people go"? Um, that'll be really interesting to see if this new kind of, you know, uh, paradigm might be a sustainable thing going forward.
0: Yeah. And I think with regards to those organizations that are having to let people go during this period, it's those that have not been proactive over the last few years in sort of working on employee welfare and working on that sort of thing. And they're resigning themselves to having to let people go. Whereas organizations like, say, for example, Nokia, who you do mention in CEO today, they were a little bit ahead of the curve um, before the pandemic because in 2008, I suppose they were guilty of that trigger happy approach of letting people go. But then they brought in the bridge program just three years after that, reduced costs per employee by over 90%, but also saw employee satisfaction go up to 85%. And it's organizations that put programs like that into place that are finding themselves being more successful. The ones that back their people are really seeing the returns now, aren't they? Yeah,
1: exactly. And, and that, that, that key is the kind of it's the planning. So don't wait for the, for the crisis. You know, organizations like IBM have been particularly good for, for you know, 15 years now and mm. just constantly looking at the workforce and saying, you know, who should we have where, how many, what types of skills should we have? And it's a constant process, whereas most organizations kind of say, OK, we're in good economic time, just hire and get whatever we can. Oh, we're in bad economic times, no, no, switch it off and let's reverse. The, the organizations that do the best. Through, um, you know through crises are those that are constantly working to to make sure they've got the right people in the right place at the right time with the right skills. Um, and they avoid the, the higher fire binge. And again, I think IBM is a great example uh, of that. Mm-hmm. And Nokia learned the hard way, right? So they, they, they were faced with a crisis. They did exactly what you know, I'm saying you shouldn't do. They got rid of you know 2,300 people overnight and it sparked a crisis. Uh, in the organization, and, and they said, right, we're never going to do that again. And they just said they put a the program called The Bridge in. We said, look, you know, let's find a way um, to keep people in place, and if we can't, let's find a way to, to get them to, to their next uh, opportunity. And, and, and that was hugely successful, and that is the way forward. And, and I do think that, you know, hopefully coming out of this pandemic, organizations are going to see that, you know, this actually worked. We kept people in place. And governments won't have to invest. They'll just, you know, organizations will do it for their own benefit. And invest in keeping people in place during their crisis. So, but I think there's still a role for government. You know, mm. I think there is a certain amount of you know the government you know stepping in and and successfully because it's a great investment for the government as well. Right, so it costs the money up front, but by keeping you know disruption to the to the lowest amount that you can, well, then you you get an upturn quicker and you start getting tax revenues quicker. So it's a good investment for the government as well to step in. I think.
0: Absolutely. To step in and have that safety net for industry is so, so important. And I'm also glad, Tim, that you've mentioned IBM there on a couple of occasions, because I do want to talk about that in a little bit more detail. Um, Going way back to 2003, they actually brought in the workforce management initiative. So they were very much ahead of the curve with this. And what that initiative did was it implemented globally integrated processes and technology to get the right people in the right place within the company at the right time. And That initiative not just put IBM in a good position to weather the effects of 2008 and 2009, but it was so successful that other huge corporate conglomerates like Google, like Microsoft, like Accenture, they've all started to now replicate that approach. So what was it about that initiative, do you think, that made it so successful and made other businesses want to kind of catch on? Yeah, well,
1: I'm a bit bit biased, but I also have the experience because I joined... Mm. um, IBM in two thousand and six and I got to see this uh, you know right up right up front and see it actually working um, and it was kind of the first time I, I sort of you know heard this kind of you know right people right posts, postpart right time once for the right motivation and it just immediately sort of resonated with me but, you know, this is the way to 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 run a company and to be constantly planning uh, for that but you know it's it, it's it's something that um, that you know IBM took a bit differently and said, look it's a look at the mindset first so The CEO, Sam Palmisano, said, this is how we're going to work. Um, Then it was a set of processes, which then HR organization put that in place. And then technology put in place to underpin it all. So mindset, change the processes to this kind of approach, and then put in, lastly, the technology should always be last, put in technology to to, to actually then uh, underpin it. Uh, and it's a really successful way uh, to do things. And I'm, you know, I've, I've I've been away from IBM for ten years now, but I am sure they have continued to update that that approach with new new mindsets, new processes, new technologies. That technology technology improves, um, and you know, it, it just it allows uh, companies like IBM to just continue to perform regardless, almost of the of the business conditions. They can adjust very quickly. Mm. Um, and I'm a big fan of it. That that is how you get rid of a furlough fatalism. That's how you get rid of a higher prior binge. Uh, Because binging is never good Mm. (laughs) in in, in any case. And um, so, you know, evening things out, moderation and everything tends to to win the day.
0: And just for maybe some of those younger business leaders out there that may be running companies that haven't been around for too long or may be even considering starting their own businesses in future, like when you're starting from scratch, what's the best way of avoiding being sucked into that hire and fire binge, do you think? What sort of advice would you give to those aspiring people?
1: Well, I think look around you at uh, examples of of organizations that perform really well, regardless of uh, of the business conditions. I think second, ignore your, uh, your business school degree and what they told you. Um, I think, uh, and I can say that because I've got a degree from business school. I think business schools have typically taught, you know, that people are cost. Um, and I think that's where a lot of it starts. Um, so I would say ignore that advice. Um, uh, and then I think, uh, thirdly, I think, you know, just always have that planning mindset. You know, you're sitting down at least once a year. And saying, you know, what's the right size for us? What's the right skill? And you're doing taking that even one step further, and, and you actually start forecasting. So you know, look out six months. Look out. You know, when you get really good at it. Look out eighteen months, and and constantly, you know, have that kind of you know, in the uh, in the in the front uh, in front of you, and know what you're shooting for. Don't treat this as a transactional thing. You have to constantly be planning. And I, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're 50 people. 500 or, or 50,000. I think this is required. Obviously, if you're a smaller company, it's a lot easier. The two options I find smaller companies say, wow, we don't need to do it because we're small. It's like, well, you're not going to be small forever. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, it's better to get into this kind of um, approach early. And guess what? People appreciate it that you're not constantly lurching from one approach or one crisis to another. They like to see a plan um, and that it's executed on.
0: I think that's very right. I think planning ahead is so, so important and being able to sort of take people on that vision with you. And just sort of switching focus ever so slightly now, Tim, um, you are, of course, a published author as well. And your book, Solving the Productivity Puzzle, actually won 2021 Business Book of the Year in the HR and management category. And so I do want to touch on productivity just for a moment in the context of this last year, because um, remote working seems to have increased productivity for some people when it comes to that remote working side of things, do you think that there's going to be room for that in the status quo going forward, even when COVID-19 is no longer an immediate and present danger? Because there've been a lot of good things to have come from this, aren't there?
1: Yeah, I think this this paradigm of what's called presenteeism, which is you're in the office because because the the, the manager's there and you're there when he or she is there uh, and you leave when he or she leaves. That has been a, um, you know, a very unhealthy way to work. And we've had it around for decades. I think this is, this the pandemic, I, I'm hoping and I, anecdotally and also in the data you're starting to see, it seems like it has, I think, broken this because I think managers, uh, who in the past were not comfortable not having their teams around them, um, have had to become comfortable with it. And I think actually in many cases, it actually discovered that it's really effective both for them and their teams. And I I would take home working and bring it up a level and say it's it's actually more about flexible working. You know, when I talk to people and I'm starting to look at some of the data now that we're kind of, you know, number of months into this, um, what we're seeing is that what we're actually seeing is people, it's flexible working. They're working during the time that works for them. And and for me, that's the thing that's really improving their, their productivity. Sure, they're not commuting as much, and that helps. But I think they're also wrapping their work around their lives and working when they're most productive. Um, But I think we're also seeing another trend where a lot of people are starting to move. say, I'm going to work a four-day week now, um, because they find that that makes them more productive at work, but also um, uh, at home. And I think we're going to see uh, organizations and people, you know, work through this flexible working, and it's going to have, I think, a big impact on uh, on uh, on people's productivity because we've been in this crisis for ten years now. Ever since the, the, the end of the twenty you know the two thousand and eight crisis, mm. um, people productivity never recovered, um, and it's only just now starting to. And I think that is mainly because of the shock that we've had, and it's broken the old ways of, of doing things, and so people are going to, I think, demand um, to 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 work in these flexible ways, which include uh, working from home.
0: And I think it's also enhanced trust, hasn't it, between business leaders and their workforces? Because whereas some may have clung to the old ways and not have been willing to let people go and work from home away from the office environment, they've had no choice now. It's sort of broken that cycle, hasn't it? And now they're realizing there's actually a lot of benefits to this. And really, we've come away from quite a difficult year having learned quite a lot for it.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, part of it, why people uh, adjust to this. Quickly is that humans like a bit of autonomy. They like to be able to say, right, what is it I'm not being asked to do? Okay, I've got that clear. Just let me get on with it. Um, you know, I found early in my career that micromanaging a team is never a good thing. You know, kind of give them give them the, the objectives, make sure they have the skills, capabilities, and the tools they need, and just let them get on with it. And I've always had, you know, whenever I've done that, and it's a hard thing to learn, um, you know, it, you get a more productive team and, and one that will stick around. Uh, and so I think it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, more and more data that's coming through that's saying, you know, working four day weeks, for instance, which again might be hard for people to initially accept, is, is improving, uh, people's productivity. Um, and, and there's two reasons for that. One, because it allows people to have flexibility. But one, if you've got four day a week, you're going to get really focused mm-hmm. on what the work is you need to do. Otherwise, if you're doing five days, you're just going to fill it up with, with stuff. And that's not, that's not, um, you know, great
0: use of people's time. Yeah, I completely see where you're coming from, from that point of view, Tim. And I am conscious that our time on the program is now beginning to draw to its close. But before we do wrap things up on today's show, I do want to talk about the future and what that is likely to bring, because we're looking ahead now to July the 19th and the ending of social restrictions in the UK. And um, But of course, In the wider world, the situation isn't quite the same. Um, In your current role, you're, of course, a board advisor and a non-exec director at a smart talent matching platform. So, over this next 12 months, as we hopefully move into the post-COVID world, what are your priorities going to be? And where do you see yourselves this time in 2022? And what do you also see for the economy in that time?
1: Yeah, I I think the focus should, and this isn't going to be surprising when I say this, should should increasingly... on productivity and performance. I think that we have a, uh, a once-in-a-generation opportunity, I think, to create, not only get us back to the level of productivity we had, but I think the historic level mm. uh, of productivity. And I think part of that, at least in our you know, our, our company, is, you know, which, as you said, is a smart matching of, of people, getting right people, right place, right time, right skills, is going to be absolutely critical. Uh, going forward. And, and this isn't just theory. You, again, you look at companies that do this really well. They are high-performing regardless of, of kind of what's going on uh, in, in the world. And I think this is where we need to really put our focus now. And and a big part of this is is the engagement of the workforce. So it isn't any more of, I'm here, I'm going to tell you what you need to do, and you go do it. It's more of a, a situation where um, people are given those objectives, they're given room to go and do it and and, and build further skills. Um, and I think that's where we're going to get into a situation where work is is a lot more enjoyable for people. And so, as you said earlier, you know, coming out of a crisis, um we may have a number of things that change in the in the workplace that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Mm. And for that, you know, I think we should be uh, uh, you know grateful, but I think we should also grasp the opportunity and and make it sustainable going forward.
0: Exactly right. Sustainability and of course a greener recovery are very much on the agenda going forward. And they are, of course, two very big variables in this, whether we're going to stick to that and really seize on that opportunity. And you know, Tim, since it's been so eye-opening having you join us on the show today, as we sort of move into the next year and we understand just how well we are taking that opportunity, if at all, I'd love to welcome you back onto the programme with us and catch up on the state of affairs, because I really, really enjoyed having you on the programme with us. And I'm sure, the listener share that sentiment
1: yeah thank you very much I've really enjoyed great question, and I'd be happy to come back on because by then we're going to be on the other side of this thing mm. and we'll have some data right, to say you know how did these, these things that we talked about play out I'd be happy to see this
0: Exactly that. And um, in the meantime, Tim, until we do hopefully speak again, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, but I'm very confident that better days are certainly ahead of us. Thanks, Scott. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Tim Ringo onto the programme today. And here at the Leaders' Council on the show, we always bring forward a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership and we'll therefore be welcoming Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett onto the programme next. He'll be addressing his thoughts on the pandemic over the last 15 or 16 months and also his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead. That will,
3: of course, be coming up next.
2: I think that with some hiccups and mistakes they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances.
3: And you're absolutely right in a in a liberal uh democracy that we live in it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um
2: well the the UK and um and the US and to some extent to uh, the Scandinavian countries not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words,